Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Build Your Network, episode 92. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger from The Jordan Harbinger Show. And if you want to learn how to network like me, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. You have the ambition, the knowledge, and the experience, but still lack those relationships necessary for achieving true success. Welcome to Build Your Network, your guide to growing your inner circle, increasing your influence, and assisting others in reaching their goals. This is networking the way it should be, brought to you by your host, Travis Chappell. What is up and welcome to the one and only show that brings you tips and tricks on networking from the best experts around three days a week. Although they may not all be in the same field, every guest that comes on the show has one very important thing in common. They believe, as I do, that building relationships is crucial to achieving success in life. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest, but first, I'm sure you've heard me and my guests talk a lot about the importance of masterminds. I know I personally would not be anywhere near where I am today without spending tens of thousands of dollars investing into building relationships in a mastermind setting. So on that, I am opening up a second round of my mastermind, Build Your Network Alpha in order to build relationships with some of you guys out there. If this is something that interests you, please head over to buildyournetwork.co slash alpha to submit an application and hop on the phone with me to chat about it. And now let's go ahead and chat with today's guest, Jordan Harbinger. Jordan is a Wall Street lawyer turned talk show host, social dynamics expert, and entrepreneur. After hosting a top 50 iTunes podcast for over a decade that enjoyed nearly 4 million downloads a month at its zenith, Jordan has embarked on a new adventure, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Here's where he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares their strategies, perspectives, and insights with the rest of us. Jordan's business sense extensive 
knowledge of the industry and contemporary approach to teaching make him one of the best and most sought after coaches in the world. Jordan, thanks so much for coming to the show today, man. Super, super excited to finally get you on. Why don't you go ahead and expound on that intro just a tad and tell me what you're most excited about doing right now. Sure. So right now I am relaunching. I did another show called The Art of Charm for 11 plus years. And I finally left that company. It's kind of long overdue. And now I am doing the Jordan Harbinger show, which is great because I'm no longer tied to a brand I don't especially love. The <laughs> drama associated with being inside a company that has those kind of those issues is no longer a part of my life. And 90 plus percent of the team has come with on this new venture. So Oh, Even nice. though it didn't happen in the way that I would have wanted it to, it's actually an amazing opportunity because now everybody who I love working with is still with me. We have to rebuild brick by brick. However, that's kind of the beautiful part about starting a new show is I've got all the relationships and the skills that I need to do it. I did it the right. first time. It took 11 and some years. This time it's going to take like one. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a little bit what you and I were talking about. We just saw each other down at Trafficking Inversion in San Diego. And it's a little bit of what I think I was talking about with you and then also with your wife, Jenny, a little bit. I was an avid listener. I still am an avid listener of your show. And the reason that I love listening to your show was because of your interview technique and your skill and ability to be able to pull some really great content from the guests that you have on. And you have amazing guests that come on the show, but you also are, are very, very crafty in the way that you are able to ask good questions that cultivate great content. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to where this show ends up taking you, bro. I think that this is going to you know, skyrocket you to the next level, honestly. Thank you, man. Yeah. Initially, it was like, oh, this is going to be terrible. I can't believe it. How did this happen to me? I'm so sad. And now I'm like, wait a minute. I would have been lazily plodding along in the old brand, doing the old show, dealing with all the old stuff and going, well, I don't really have a choice. Since the choice is made for me, it's like, wait a minute. Now I've got an opportunity for a fresh start with all the same... It's kind of... You know when people go, what would you do if you had to start over? Or what would you do differently knowing what you know now? And now I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I get to actually do that, right? Yeah. I get to actually lean on all of my friends and I get to actually lean on my network and I get to actually lean on my skill set built over 11 and a half years. And I get to bring my awesome friends and team with me that are already mm -hmm. trained and already like what they're doing. This is what I would do. You know, and now I get to rebuild it again, which is actually quite cool. And grind again, like I'm 27, only now I'm 38. And I get to do it in a way that makes sense. And it's not like, oh, I guess I'm trying to figure out what's going to work and what's not and throw stuff at the wall in my business and see what sticks. I don't have to do that anymore. I can just focus on things that have worked for me in the past, test a few new things. And it's just a completely different game. I mean, the amount of downloads that the Jordan Harbinger show has as of the first... We're not even a month in. We're about two and a half, three weeks in. Mm -hmm. I have more downloads of an, the Simon Sinek episode that I'm looking at right now of that show. It took me nine years to get Art of Charm to get that many downloads for an episode. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's crazy. And, and that's not even a month of shows. I mean, in three months, we could actually potentially be bigger than 
the art of charm ever was for various reasons. <laughs> That's incredible. And I'd listen to that episode, by the way, the one with Simon Sinek. And again, bro, like I just have to applaud your interview ability. It's something that like I never spent any time thinking about that like at all. When I first started my podcast, I was just kind of like, oh yeah, you talk to people and like you ask them questions and then that's about it type thing. I never even thought of sure. interviewing as like a skill set or an ability or something to cultivate or get better at over a long period of time. And then I started interviewing people and I was like, oh man, I suck at this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't blame you, man. It took me, I didn't even think about interviewing at all as a skill for the first six or seven years of the show. It was only, which sounds dumb now, now that I think about it, but it sounds silly. But what, the way I learned about it was I interviewed Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power. And at the end of the interview, he goes, man, why did this take so long? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you and I have been on each other's radar for a while. And I went, well, you know, I didn't think I was going to do a good job. And he goes, no, this is literally probably one of the best interviews I've done all year. And it was like December or something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I went, what, really? Are you serious? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you really prepared and you did a good job. And, and that was enough of a confidence boost for me. But I've been doing the show for seven years that I went, oh, I should work on this because maybe I do have a knack for this. But it was, I had no knack for it. I just spent seven years stumbling around and I was just kept doing it that I got good enough at it that I was better than most people at that point who had interviewed him and he was probably in a good mood, right? So, <laughs> so I took that and I ran and went, oh, I'm going to get really good at this. You know, I'm going to get really good at this now. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over one hundred and forty million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Was there any like books or audios that you listened to? Or was it just kind of like studying what other people did, like watching, you know, Larry King or, you know, listening to Tim Ferriss or other people like that, that really helped you be able to do that? Or was it honestly just the fact that you just did so much of it all the time that you just continuously, continuously got better? 
Yeah, I mean, Tim didn't have a show back then. I helped him launch his show in 2013 or 2014, maybe. I'm not okay. sure when he started. Might wow. be even later than that. And I put helped him launch in air quotes because there were it was me and my producer and a couple other people. I didn't exactly. It wasn't like I was like, here's how you turn your microphone on. You know, he's. <laughs> he, but uh, but we helped him with that that whole thing off the ground podcast wise because he used. It's funny to say this. I remember him emailing me a long time ago and being like, hey, I'm a fan of your show. And I was like, oh, okay, you're writing a book. Congratulations. Four-hour work week. <laughs> Sounds weird. And then I read it. And I was like, this is a really good book. And he's like, thanks, man. I hope it takes off. And now I'm like, oh my God, look at this guy. <laughs> so yeah, that man, that was a long time ago, man. That was like a decade ago. But yeah, I watched probably 300 Larry King interviews and I was like, oh, I like some of this and I don't like a lot of the rest of it. So I, I have a whole list of things I learned from Larry King. Many are do this and the other, the bigger list is don't do this. And it's not because he, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. It's Larry King for God's sake. He's like the godfather of this stuff that's still around anyway. It's because I went, oh, that was really cool for TV. That was really cool for radio. Now I'm, I am a natively digital interviewer. And that the distinction really doesn't matter for our purposes here, but I've focused on podcasting in a way that is the Andrew Warner from Mixergy told me recently, nobody thinks about podcasting like you do, which is kind of a funny compliment because what he means is, holy crap, are you anal about everything you do in this process? Because <laughs> he's really oriented. You know, he does a pre-interview. He pushes you hard. He's got prep. He's got questions. He's got this. He reads your stuff. Da, da, da. And he looked at my stuff and he was like, man, lighten up. You know, so, so I am very much a digital native interviewer and I focus on it to the, not to the detriment of anything else, but me, my producer and everybody here, we realize that the show is the product. Whereas a lot of interviewers and podcasters, the, the podcast is like one of their channels and they also do Snapchat and they're selling an ebook, but really the thing is webinars and they're on LinkedIn and they do paid acquisition. Our product at the Jordan Harbinger show, our product is the show. Right. So it's not that we're not going to have events. It's not that we're not going to have offerings and courses and online stuff. It's not like we're not going to do anything else. And it's not like I'm not on Instagram. It's just that the show has to be really, really good because that's where we're competing. We're competing against everyone else for the best interview show around. And I think we're doing a damn good job of that. And my team is obsessed with quality. My team is obsessed with making sure every show solves a problem. Every episode has worksheets that help people apply what the guest is teaching. Hmm. Every episode has extensive show notes so that people know what they're going to learn when they listen. Every episode is cut. There's an average of, I think, 900 to 1500 edits in each episode that my producer does to wow. cut out filler words from the guest, to cut out unnecessary silences, to cut out flubs, to cut out tangents to cut out unnecessary promotion by the guest, to cut out stupid references that don't make any sense, to cut out jokes that didn't land. And I'd like to say that's all on behalf of the guest, but a lot of times it's my jokes that don't <laughs> land. And so those are all cut out because we realize that a minute of a listener's time is worth a lot to that listener. And when you extrapolate that and you say, okay, we're serving 5 million podcast episodes this month. 5 million episodes are downloaded. Each one is roughly an hour long, maybe a little less. Let's say it's 5 million hours. So that's a lot of minutes, man. I'm going to do some back of the napkin math here. Hold on a second. 5 million hours is roughly 300 million minutes. And so that's a lot of minutes. So if you cut out one from a show or two or 10 or 20, you just saved hundreds of thousands of minutes, thousands of hours of people's time. And we're very cognizant and conscious of that because 
every minute that you get from the listener is earned. And if you're not earning it, they're going to turn you off and go somewhere else. And they should. They should do that. So I look at every interview as I'm an advocate for the listener. I used to be an attorney, which is an advocate job, right? You are an advocate for your client. I look at that as that's how I approach the show, okay? So every single episode has to solve a problem. It has to provide some practical things that people can learn. And I spend every minute of my life studying the thoughts, the actions, the habits of brilliant people, finding out what I can ask them so that the audience can apply that same wisdom for themselves. So I want to take their superpowers and deliver that to the audience. And if I can't do that and I just end up with an interesting story, I don't know if we have a show there, right? It's not about the guest. It's what the guest can teach to the listener. So every show, I'm not trying to be friends with the guest. I'm not trying to be friends with you know the person who I'm interviewing. I'm trying to get them to like me or anything. I'm not even trying to get the most entertaining thing I can out of them. I'm trying to get the thing out of them that the listener can take with them and go, I learned this from the Jordan Harbinger show. Because otherwise, you're just entertaining people. There's a place for that. But you become a commodity at that point if you're just entertaining people. And frankly, Jimmy Fallon's better at it. So I can't <laughs> lean on that. Yeah, that was like the most interesting part of this whole thing for me, bro, was when we, because obviously when, uh, for anybody listening out there, me and Jordan got the chance to hang out a little bit when we were out in Australia at a podcasting conference out there. And I believe it was Omar Zenholm that was up talking about how many hours on average you research your guests before you actually have them on and interview them. How many hours do you research your guests, bro? And then what exactly does that mean? Like, How can you possibly fill up that much time with, with research? Yeah. So I spend an average of six to 10 hours. And I've tracked this sometimes 12, usually not usually average around eight to 10 hours. And so I'll be real though. The majority of that is me reading their book and taking notes. Okay. So I don't do this thing where it's like, Oh, uh, I've got an interview with Travis in a minute. Okay. Let me Google them. All right. I'm writing their bio all right, cool. Here's his LinkedIn profile. Okay. I see that he went to school at university of Chicago or whatever. Okay, cool. I went to seminary school. All right. Awesome. Right. I'm not doing that. I'm reading their book from cover to cover. And I mean, like I'm reading the dedication. I'm reading the epilogue. I'm reading the stuff in the appendix sometimes. I mean, if it's a bunch of math equations, forget it, but I'm going through the whole book. I'm taking notes. So I've got to pause it. I do audiobooks. I got to pause it a hundred times an hour write things down on my phone, iPad or computer, take notes. Then it's like, oh, they gave a TED Talk. I'm going to watch that. Okay, cool. I want to read some of the most upvoted comments on their YouTube channel from some of their talks because there might be people there who are like, I'm a cognitive scientist and this person's main thesis is wrong. And then somebody else is like, no, it's not. Look at this evidence. I'll go there, look at that, read that evidence. Find, I'll go on Amazon. I'll look at their critical interviews. Uh, sorry, critical reviews. Most helpful critical review. Because a lot of times critical reviews on Amazon are like, this was boring. But the most helpful critical review would be like, oh, I really like this, but here's a glaring flaw in their research process is that it, this can't be reproduced and other scientists disagree with them and blah, blah, blah. I'll read that too. So mm -hmm. then I go to their Wikipedia page. I read the Wikipedia article naturally, but there's also the talk page, which is where the Wikipedia editors argue incessantly about what goes in the article and what's been cut out of the article. And there's a lot of little anecdotes in there and like I said, I read the prologue and the epilogue to the book because that's where you see stuff like, oh man, this random talk show host that I'm interviewing or this random personality, hip hop guy, whatever, dedicated the book to 
their surrogate mother. What does that mean? What happened to your real mother? Who's the surrogate mother? How did she raise you? How did you meet her? Oh, you're not adopted by her, but she was your neighbor because your sister raised you, but then your sister got into drugs and then left you and the neighbor ended up raising you. That's the story, not the stuff that's in the book. Hmm. That's the story that I want to learn about this person. Maybe they didn't even write about that because it wasn't about cognitive science. But the story that I want to start with is that, and you don't get that when you Google the person and read the first page or when you have an intern read the book or you read a summary from InstaRead. You don't get that. Right, right. That's what I was going to ask. So when you go into the interview, do you have like questions planned out and written ahead of time? Or is it just like topics that you really want to dive into? And then you just kind of let the conversation unfold from there? Yeah. So what I do, what my notes look like, in fact, I'm just going to like real time go into my show prep and I'm going to bust out some prep. So I interviewed, I'm going to bust out Bill Browder. So Bill Browder is Putin's enemy and Vladimir Putin. What he did is he's responsible for some legislation in Congress called the Magnitsky Act. He's also taken down a lot of Russian oligarchs and stuff like that. And he wrote this book called Red Notice. And I had him on the show. He's a billionaire hedge fund guy. And he's taken down all these Russian bad guys who murdered his lawyer and friend. And he's doing that because he's pissed off at Vladimir Putin and his cronies for murdering his lawyer and friend for uncovering a tax fraud in the Russian government where they stole hundreds of millions of dollars from the Russian citizens, really. So the theme was courage. And I'm writing out all these things from his book and all these articles are linked in my prep and all this stuff. And the theme was courage. And I highlight different things of different colors in my show prep, right? And some of the questions I have are, okay, you went to Poland and you learned how to take over these things, but were you scared? Who was your mentor during this time? And these are things that are kind of touched on the book where it's like, yeah, he ends up working for this guy out of New York and the guy just gives him a bunch of cash and tells him to go to Eastern Europe. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. The other guys were ignoring you. You get this cowboy who's literally a cowboy who works in New York, who's this grouchy finance guy. What did you learn from that guy? Because he just gave him he gave Bill Browder a bunch of travel vouchers and blank checks, which is clearly not corporate protocol, right? For this investment bank. <laughs> right. He goes, just take this stuff and then we'll figure out how to make it work later once you've made us $25 million from this $2 million. And he's like, just don't screw it up. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Great story, but what did you learn from this? And he goes, oh man, you know, I learned that the only way to do business in the wild west or the wild east of Eastern Europe is to be like a cowboy like this guy, Bobby, out of New York. And the reason it worked was because he shot first and asked questions later. And, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And there's all this kind of little maxims that he learned that just didn't make it into the book. And the reason is because the book was a story about these crazy situations he's found himself in. It wasn't a how-to manual, but I turned this into a learning episode for the listener. And I've got questions here like, you are taking down these Russian oligarchs. These are mafia guys. They start coming after you. What are you thinking? You're 33 years old. Why are you doing this? Go home, get a safe job. What is your problem? And he's like, no, I had ego attachment. I was making money. I didn't want to leave behind. I was 33 years old. I wasn't scared of anybody. I should have been, but I wasn't. He's like, my wife, you know, our relationship was falling apart and we divorced and she went back. I didn't have anything else. I had to prove to myself to my friend's family that I wasn't a failure. And that's why I kept doing this. And I went, oh, okay. So how do we reproduce these types of feelings without ruining our family and our lives and stuff? And he's like, oh, let me think about this. So we go through these thought processes, these mental models that these successful people use. And that's what I'm trying to get out of the guest. And it doesn't matter if it's a senator 
or Simon Sinek or a billionaire hedge fund guy or a body language expert or an attorney for Michael Jackson. They've all got mental models they use and they've all used these mental models consciously or not to become successful. And that's what we're teasing out on the Jordan Harbinger show because nobody else, including these people, is thinking about this stuff. Right. So when you started the show, did you realize that this was something that you really wanted to like perfect as far as like that skill? Or was that like year seven, year eight, you were like, oh, there's actually something here. People don't spend a lot of time on this. And if I can be the one to spend that much time on this, I can be the one that feeds this good content to my listeners. Yeah, it it took a long time. I don't think that follow your passion is a good advice. I'm one of these like rare people who thinks that that's terrible uh, advice. I, I totally agree but with But you that. should always bring your passion with you. So what I did with the podcast, the old show that eventually is now the Jordan Harbinger show, the old show is called The Art of Charm. And what I did on that show was I did it for six and seven years out of a mild interest for the subject matter that grew over time. The interview process for me was not interesting. And when I started to get good at it, as evident, and I didn't even know I was good at it, freaking Robert Greene, the author who I mentioned earlier, 48 Laws of Power, he had to tell me I was good at it. I didn't even think I was. Then I decided, well, wait a minute, if he thinks I'm good at it, and he gets interviewed all the time, maybe there's something here. So let me be real clear. When I was in school, I was not a super smart kid. I was above average, I guess, but I worked hard. And then I got to college and everybody was smart, but they were getting drunk all the time. So I outworked them. Then I got to law school and everybody who was there was really smart and worked really hard. So I just had to figure out how to work harder. If they were studying for 12 hours a day, I just worked for 16. And then when I got to Wall Street and everybody was working 20 hours a day and everybody was really smart, that's when I realized I could not continue to outwork everyone around me. And I had to find another competitive advantage, which was networking and relationship development. So then I started working really hard and applying myself at that. So with the interview process, there was never a point at which I went, I'm talented at this. No, there was never that. It was seven years later, I went, oh, I've built up enough of a basic skill set here that I'm better than average. This is now not the time to rest on laurels or pat myself on the back. Now it's time to kick things up into high gear. And that's all it was. Like I said, I never thought of interviewing as a craft. I just thought, oh, I like learning from people. So talking with them is a good way to do this because I'm not going to write it down. So podcasting for me was almost like a lazy way of documenting my conversations. I didn't think of it as an art form that needed to be honed. That came after seven years. So for the last five years, I've been working my ass off at the craft of interviewing. And the way that I do that is I hire journalists that work at CNN and journalism instructors at Columbia University and voice coaches and people who've written books on the subject. And I pay them and I go, listen to my show and tell me where I'm screwing up. And they go, okay, great. And we do that for months and months and months until they finally say, look, I don't know what else I can do for you here, buddy. You know, the rest of it's up to you. And then I try to find somebody else who is even maybe even better at the craft of interviewing. The problem is right now where I'm at is reaching out to people who work full-time at CNN or NBC and going, hey, can I give you a certain amount of money to coach me? And they go, are you kidding? You know, I make like 5 million bucks a year as a banker for CNN and the nightly news, right? And I go, yes, I do. What's going to make this interesting for you? And they're just like, uh, eight grand for two hours. And I'm like, you know, but I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to be better. Hmm. That's crazy. That's crazy. Is this something that you teach now, bro? Or, or do you kind of steer clear of that and still focus on getting better at your craft? I haven't taught it yet, but eventually I might. I'd never thought like, oh, I'm so good at this. I can teach it. But truth be told, 
I'm definitely able to convey the skills that I've learned so far. I just haven't sat down and done it in a formal way, but there's Mm. going to be a time at which it's just going to make sense for me to do this because there's not that many people teaching interviewing that are actually good at it. There's people teaching the absolute basics of it to people at journalism schools and things like that, but Mm. I've been to those classes, many of them, and some of them are good interviewers, but they're still teaching the basics to people who are new. There's not that many people who go, hey, look, this is how you go from C-plus interviewer to to B plus A minus level or A level interviewer. There's just not that many because it's not a skill set that a lot of people even think about. Even journalists for news, if you've ever done a piece for national news, I mean, I get interviewed here and there for national news media and I often think, wow, this is a very mediocre interview you just did. And I don't say that out loud, of course, to this (laughs) national, you know, but the people that are good at interviewing are like Anderson Cooper, right? These are people that you, who are household names because they have their own show, Christian Amanpour or something, right? These are great journalists. There's just not that many people doing it. And even then, look for a long-form interviewer that does an hour-long or 45-minute-long chat like we do on the Jordan Harbinger show. There's almost nobody because that's not really what media wants. They want a 10-minute segment. So it's easier to shine for 10 minutes than it is to shine for an hour. But unfortunately for many of us, a 10-minute segment is very limited in what you can teach. That's why I do hour-long shows, 45-minute long shows, because frankly, you just got to get past the first bit of people's sound bites before you get real stuff. You just aren't going to get a dense interview with matters that changes people's lives, that teaches them something they can use in 10 or 15 minutes. It's not possible. And if you do get some nuggets in 10 or 15, that means that you could have gotten a hell of a lot more in 45 to an hour and you just left it on the table. Right, right. So besides Anderson Cooper, is there somebody right now that you watch a lot to hone your abilities a little bit more? It's really hard to find. I like Charlie Rose. His personal misdeeds aside, he's just always been such a bomb interviewer. So good at it. Anybody on 60 Minutes is generally going to be pretty good because that's kind of where they put the older journalists that have their stuff just absolutely on lock. Hmm. And so I'll watch 60 Minutes, which is funny because I remember being so bored by that show growing up as a teenager. I just, my dad would watch it and i go, oh my God, who cares, right? But that's because I was obsessed with whatever I was obsessed with as a teenager, like BMXing or something. I don't right, know, right. racing bikes. I don't know, something dumb like that. They didn't have social media back then which yeah. is so funny to say. Makes me sound so old. But we didn't have social media back then, so there was nothing where I was like, I'm aspiring to this. There was no inspiration whatsoever. It was just like, go to school and get a job. That was it. That was all we knew. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, bro, I, honestly, I, I could talk to you about this for a long time. This is a subject matter that I'm very curious about now, obviously, with podcasting now. And like I said, it was completely off my radar when I first started, just not even thinking about it in the least. And now it's like at the forefront of my mind as far as an education standpoint. So any sort of materials or anything that you could shoot over my way, I'm, I'm all ears on that kind of stuff. But we only got a few minutes left. I do want to talk to you a little bit about networking since this is a Bilge Network podcast. This is the question I ask everybody that comes on the show to kind of get the conversation going in this direction. I'm really curious to hear your answer to it. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? It's definitely about who you know. And a lot of people, when they say that, they put some stank on it, right? They're like, oh, it's all about who you know. That's why Travis got a promotion and I'm still down here. Screw that guy. People should be saying that about you. Although ideally, they're saying it about you and they're going, yeah, man, he's just really well connected and they should admire that because they also feel connected to you. Right. So you're not just connecting up, you're connecting quote unquote down 
and yeah. laterally. And I think a lot of people, when they think about networking, they think, oh, it's smarmy because you're only network. They're only thinking about networking up or, oh, he just, you know, this person is networking because they want to sell something or because they want to schmooze the boss. That is different. That's an entirely different thing than what we're really talking about here, which is being well connected with everyone. So networking is important in that your relationships are going to save you. They're the only thing people can't take away from you in a lawsuit or if you lose your job or something like that. Like the shift I'm going through leaving the Art of Charm and now at the Jordan Harbinger show, my skills and relationships are what I have primarily that I'm leaning on. If I didn't have a network, I would just have skills, which is great, but holy cow, it'd be really scary. So you should be using these at all times, this networking that you're, the network that you're building, the relationships that you're building these are going to last the rest of your life and they will undoubtedly be the most important resource you have because at some point, if you don't lose everything, your relationships are going to be the most important thing that's going to help you move upward. And if you do lose anything or everything, God forbid, then you better have a network to help support you because that's really what's going to matter. So short term, your network's going to be great. Long term, your network's going to be crucial. Yeah. And I love that you brought that up because I think that a lot of people will avoid networking because they don't want to be the person that does it poorly so bad that they just like neglect mm-hmm. doing exactly. it completely. How would you define networking? To, like somebody's like, I don't like that word. I don't like networking. I, I don't like doing that. It's, it's really spammy. I don't like it. I don't like having business cards thrown in my face. How would you define networking? Yeah. So that's why people avoid it, right? They feel like good people who think about it think, I don't necessarily know how to do this. And it makes me feel gross when other people do it because they're looking at the negative examples. But here's what people don't think about when they think about networking. They don't see people doing it right and doing it well most of the time. So when I think networking and relationship development, I'm not thinking, all right, how do I get to know this Travis guy so I can get on his show? What I'm doing is I'm thinking about how to help other people without the expectation of anything in return, principle number one. We call it ABG, always be giving, instead of ABC, always be closing. So always help other people without the expectation of anything in return. And then you have to do it in a scalable way. So what that means is if I'm a graphic designer, I'm not just doing a bunch of free graphic design for people because I'll go bankrupt. What I'm doing is I'm looking inside my network and going, okay, Travis just started a new business. He said something about taxes. I know an awesome CPA for small businesses that are in the digital realm. Hey, Travis, you want this introduction to the CPA? He's going to help you save a bunch of money on taxes. Yeah, I would love that. Great. So that's scalable. I can make 15 email introductions in a day in half an hour, right? I can't make free website graphics for 15 people in a month without going hungry. Hmm. So that's what's scalable about it. I'm connecting two people or three people or multiple people in my network to each other that can help one another. So then I got twice the amount of social capital coming back to me because they're like, oh, we owe you one. Thanks for connecting us. And I did 1% of the work, right? I connected them instead of doing the actual legwork and trying to do free work for people to get them to like me or get some other sort of results. So one, give without the expectation of anything in return. Two, do it in a scalable way. Three, Another thing that that causes people to shy away from networking and relationship development is the idea of they don't want to owe somebody something and have it blow up in their face. So Mm. when people help you and they keep score because they're not really giving the expectation of something in return, they're keeping score. Say that somebody... introduce you to somebody and then I introduce you to somebody else and then I introduce you to somebody else and then I introduce you to somebody else. And then one day I'm like, I'm picking you up from the airport. 
And another day I'm driving you home from the airport. And then another day I got you a speaking gig. And then finally I write an ebook on dog grooming. It's not a good fit for your audience. I'm like, hey, dude, can you sell my book to your audience on dog grooming? And you're like, nah, it's not really a good fit for my audience. Now, if I've given without the expectation of anything in return, I'm like, oh, all right, well, I understand that. I'm a little disappointed, but I understand. Can you connect me with somebody who you think it might be a good fit? But if I'm keeping score, what's going on in my head is I go, screw you, Travis. You know, come on, man. I've helped you out a ton. What's your problem? I might not even say that. I might just be passive aggressive a bunch. And -hmm. you're wondering why Mm -hmm. our friendship is now stale. And that becomes a problem because I'm poisoning our own relationship by keeping score. So you have no idea what went wrong. And meanwhile, I'm like, screw this guy. He's a dick. What a taker. When you're not at all. I had a covert contract in my head. I had an agreement that you didn't know about. And that agreement said, if I help Travis enough, he owes me and he'll have to do what I need him to do. Right. And that's why a lot of people don't want to be in a networking scenario because they don't know how to ask for what they want or they're afraid to do that. Or worse, they're worried that if they do enough of this, then people are going to ask them to do things that they don't want to do. And so they don't want to have to set boundaries. So there's a lot of things and we could talk, that's a whole, each one of these is probably a whole show, but that's where people are starting to go wrong because they're thinking about this in the wrong way. And they're also thinking about networking transaction, you know, and that's a problem. Exactly. Exactly. Transactionally. So that brings me to my next question, which is, because since I've been starting the show, that's always my biggest piece of advice. So when you're in a networking situation and I'm like, oh yeah, I have a, a podcast about networking, whatever. And then somebody's just trying to make good conversations. So they go, well, what's your number one tip on networking? I always say, well, give, you know, just be giving, give without expecting anything in return. Basically exactly what you just said. The number one question I always get in return is, aren't you worried about like somebody taking advantage of you? How do you respond to that question? Sure. That's a good place to wrap this one because I do get asked that a lot myself. If you think somebody is taking advantage of you and you don't have this experience with a lot of people, so here's the caveat. It's pretty rare that someone's going to take advantage of you. If you find that, quote unquote, everyone takes advantage of you, it's probably you. Hmm. You're either filtering in these people or you're kind of a victim for some other reason, real or not. That said, if someone is taking advantage of you and you really are convinced that they are, one way to test this is to ask them for some simple thing. And if they say no, then maybe they are a taker and they have no intention of ever helping you. However, most people won't do this, right? If you're giving and giving and giving and you expect a result and they don't give you what you want, ask yourself if there's a covert contract, ask yourself if you're keeping score and ask yourself if you really did give without the expectation of anything in return. It doesn't mean you always have to give no matter what, what it means is you have to give when you're willing to give without the expectation of anything in return. So if you've been helping someone and they've never helped you, it doesn't mean they're taking advantage of you. If you have helped someone and they refuse to help you even with small things, then they're probably taking advantage of you. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I appreciate you coming on. I know that you got to get rolling here. So let's go ahead and move on to really quick, the last segment. It takes just a couple of minutes, just a couple really quick random questions with some quick random answers. You ready? Sure. This is the random round. What profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? It'd be fun to do stand-up comedy, even though I'm not that funny. So it might only be fun for like a week and then I'd be like, wow, this is hard. I hate it. Goodbye. <laughs> If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? I want to talk to Darren Brown. You know who that is? I don't know. So he's like an illusionist, but he he manipulates people. Okay. And that sounds more nefarious than it is. But basically, 
he gets compliance from people and he has them doing all this crazy stuff. And then just watch The Push. It's called The Push on Netflix. He basically programs these people to murder someone using all these little hypnosis things and all these little compliance tests. It's incredible. So kind of like a mentalist? He's like a mentalist, but he's kind of like David Blaine without cards. Uh, He's just incredible. He's all in your head and in other people's heads. It's, It's nuts. How do you like to consume content? Books, blogs, podcasts, or videos? I like audiobooks. What is one of the best audiobooks you've listened to recently? There's one that's called We Need to Talk by Celeste Headley. She's an NPR journalist. She talks about speaking and interviewing people and having great conversations. So that was really interesting. Also, I think that there's a book called The Code of Trust, which is about, it's from my friend who's the head of the FBI counter. Well, he's in the FBI and he recruits spies. And his book is called The Code of Trust. And it's all about kind of how that works. So those are two great audiobooks. There's so many though. I have hundreds of audiobooks in my phone. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I get up really early and I go for a walk. And that walk is like two or three hours long. And I read, I do phone calls, a little bit of email, talk to my wife who usually comes with me. And then I'll eat something because I'm usually starving by then. And then I will come in and start the day. So I usually start my day by walking several miles. Gets the blood flowing, gets some of my reading done. That kind of thing works really well for me. What is your go-to pump-up song? I don't have one. More of an audio. But if I did, it would be Welcome to the Jungle (laughs) by Guns N' Roses. (laughs) (laughs) What are you not very good at? I'm not good at most things, but I'm not very good at cooking. I hear you on that one. I make a mean grilled cheese, though, I will have to say. As we get everything wrapped up here, bro, what I is probably one place probably online even make real cheese. where we'll be able to find you the most? Yeah, the Jordan Harbinger Show, man. You're already listening to a podcast. That is my main piece of art, my creative outlet, where I speak and do all of my teaching. So Perfect. I would love it if people would go to the Jordan Harbinger Show and learn some stuff and then tell me how it goes. Perfect. Please, please, please go check that out. If you have not heard Jordan's stuff before, I highly recommend it. I'm not just saying this because he's a guest on the show, although I'm not above doing that sometimes, but I am definitely a big fan of everything Jordan puts out. So go check out his stuff. Reach out, say what's up. Tell me you heard about him over here on Build Your Network. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show today, man. I had a blast chatting with you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. That's all for this episode of Build Your Network. Your next step is to visit byn.media slash FB to join in on our Facebook group for more personal engagement, proven strategies and tactics to reach your ultimate goals. That's byn.media forward slash FB. Remember, you're only one connection away. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.